Welcome to episode 45 of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're taking a suggestion that was made so long ago that I wasn't yet tracking who made the suggestion. Probably would have been someone from Horizon Labs or one of my Facebook friends. I apologize for not keeping track of who it was. But this month we're looking at Iron Man's repulsors. So I looked into a little bit on marvel.wikia.com, and canonically, since at least the Mark III armor, so the first time he mixed the red and the gold way back in the Tales of Suspense days, the repulsor rays have been muon beams. So the question is, what are muon beams and what can they do? Now before we get into this in too much detail, I want to remind you a couple of things about the theory of relativity, because it's actually going to be relevant. The most famous part of the theory of relativity is E equals mc squared. It's a formula that describes not only the fact that energy and mass can be converted from one to the other, but you know how much of one it takes to create a certain amount of the other and vice versa. As it turns out, that's a footnote in the theory. A much bigger part of the theory is that everything in the universe is limited by the speed of light, but no matter how you're moving, when you measure the speed of any given photon relative to you, you turn out to get the speed of light. So if two different observers are moving at two different speeds and measure the speed of the same photon going between them or you know, in some proximity of both of them, they agree that that photon is moving at the speed of light. But they will disagree on the distance traveled because they're in different positions as they measure it. Therefore, they must also disagree on how much time has elapsed. That phenomenon is known as length contraction and time dilation. So if I'm sitting on a bench and a photon goes by and travels 30 meters and you're driving by and look at the same photon, which has gone 15 meters more than you, then you will say only half as much time has elapsed, as I will say. Also, your car is incredibly fast. You're moving at half the speed of light. But in any event, those are important prerequisites to keep in mind as we're going through this. So now, again, what are muons? Well, they're part of what particle physicists refer to as the zoo. It's an assortment of particles that are grouped into families, which are often identical in all respects except their mass. The electron family includes muons and taus, as well as neutrinos corresponding to all three of these. So muons are essentially heavy electrons, and they were discovered in 1936. So they are identical to electrons in virtually all respects except for mass, but that one difference is a big one. A muon has over 200 times the mass of the electron. That means it's possible to convert the energy contained within the mass of a muon into lower mass particles if the other attributes are conserved. So, for example, you can turn a muon into an electron. It's got the same electric charge. It's got the same spin or intrinsic angular momentum. That electron would have to have higher energy. But if a stationary muon becomes an electron, that electron would have energy, which means it would be in motion. So it would be kinetic energy. And momentum would not be conserved. We need that electron to have energy to conserve energy, that E equals mc squared. So if it's in motion, well, then momentum wouldn't be conserved because the muon started with zero momentum, the electron ends up with non-zero momentum. But muons do decay into electrons. We've seen that in the lab, and the electrons generally take off in different directions than the original muon was traveling in. So that leaves us with two options. Either we throw away momentum conservation, or we find other particles to account for the missing momentum. Throwing away momentum conservation turns out to be far more complicated than one might think. As a result of Noether's theorem, there's actually a discrete tie between symmetries in our coordinate systems and conservation laws. 
So if we don't have momentum conservation, Noether's theorem, which is purely mathematical, proves that we would also lose the ability to decide where we set the zero on our position scale. There would be a preferred frame of reference for the universe, which causes much greater problems. So instead, we look for these particles that have the missing momentum. Turns out that these particles do exist. They're neutrinos, which are notoriously hard to detect. It's also true that the total number of particles in each family is conserved. So to get rid of a muon, you must either create a muon neutrino particle or also get rid of a muon antiparticle or a muon antineutrino at the same time. When we apply the same rules to the electron family, we find that if a muon decays into an electron, we're adding something to the electron family. So we need to add something that has a negative one count in the electron family or namely an electron antineutrino. So when muons decay, they decay into three particles, an electron, an electron antineutrino, and a muon antineutrino. So now that we know that muons are essentially electrons and that they do decay, we have to ask ourselves, well, how often do they decay, right? How much time does it take? Is it practical to use them in the repulsor beams? Well, the answer is these things decay extremely often. The half-life of a muon is 3.17 times 10 to the negative 6 seconds, or about 3 microseconds. So moving at 1% of light speed, that gets you about 9.5 meters or 31 feet before half the muons in your muon beam have decayed into electrons. So this means that we don't find a lot of muons under normal conditions in nature, and it's impractical to store them and try to carry them around in the armor. So they have to be created when they are being shot out of the repulsors. So that means the suit has a considerably powerful particle accelerator built in, and that the repulsor pads are actually some kind of beam stop where other high-energy particles that are easily accessible, like electrons, are being slammed into it with enough energy to create muons with the requisite neutrinos and antineutrinos. It also means that they are traveling at a fairly high percentage of light speed, so time dilation does come into play. We know this because we've seen how long the range of the beams are. So if they're coming at 50% of light speed, then time dilation kicks in, the half-life gets stretched about 15% longer, and the fact that we see these repulsor rays reach, say, 100 meters regularly enough with the same effects and still collimated so we don't see electrons shooting off at strange angles says that a high percentage, probably more than 99%, we're going to treat this 99% today, are still muons at the time. So from the perspective of the muons, only 22 nanoseconds could have elapsed if we still have at least 99% of their population still as muon particles. But from our perspective, that means we're looking at at least 334 nanoseconds in that same amount of time. That's after adjusting for time dilation. So when we look at the connection that we need between those numbers, we find that these muons are coming out of his repulsors at about 99.8% of the speed of light or more. So when you're looking at that kind of energy with muons, these weapons don't have a non-lethal option. Furthermore, whatever he's blasting at is going to be dangerously radioactive for a moment. I mean, these are spewing off not just neutrinos, but high-energy electrons. Electrons with enough energy that if they hit protein strands, they can actually warp them. So these rays could easily cause cancer in their targets. Although cancer is a long-term danger, and these rays would rip through any target that they hit. So really the short-term concerns, as I said, is that these things do not have a non-lethal option. So Tony himself doesn't need to worry about his heart damage. He needs to worry about cancer. The radiation shielding in his suit cannot be enough. To keep him safe from this kind of radiation, it would have to be a protective layer of 
a material that's enough to block the radioactive particles coming in. But given the size, it would have to be incredibly dense. So dense that when he's wearing the armor, even if it supports himself, it would be too much for the average car or the average elevator to move in. So he couldn't just slip it under his clothes and take the elevator at work. No, he would destroy that elevator. He would ruin any car he's in. The mass would just be insanely high. So in the end, we find that, yeah, muon beams are an effective weapon, right? They would actually do a lot of damage, but the power requirements of the suit to produce them and the behavior that we see on the page just doesn't fit with what muon beams would do. So I get the tendency to pick a particle that's not common to make it sound fancy and advanced, but whoever decided that muon beams were the results, but whoever decided that muon beams were the output of the repulsor should have dug into them a little bit more. Anyway, that's what we have to say about Iron Man's repulsors. Join us again in August and then again every month on the last Wednesday of the month through December 2017 as we wrap up comic book physics to make room for other podcasts next year. Thank you for listening.